You're listening to the March 25th edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks, Managing Editor of FilmLink.com. And this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. For this edition of The Close-Up, we're featuring a conversation with the cast of the AMC series Mad Men. Mad Men creator Matthew Weiner, along with stars from the hit series John Hamm, January Jones, Christina Hendricks, and John Slattery, joined moderator Chuck Klosterman here at Lincoln Center for a lively onstage conversation about the Emmy and Golden Globe winning series, looking back at the seminal TV show's seven seasons. Mad Men premiered in July of 2007 on AMC, and the cable network will begin airing the final episodes starting April 5th. Set in the 1960s, Mad Men was originally centered within the fictional Madison Avenue ad agency Sterling Cooper in New York. And over the seasons, the show has explored lead character Don Draper's personal and professional exploits. Over the years, the show has developed a fanatical audience, creating tremendous anticipation for these final shows in the series. The series has received widespread critical acclaim for its historical authenticity, visual style, costume design, acting, writing, and directing. Mad Men's list of awards include 15 Emmys and four Golden Globes, and it is the first basic cable series to win the Emmy Award for Outstanding Drama Series. In the lead-up to Saturday's event, Mad Men, The End of an Era, before a packed crowd at Alice Tully Hall, Matthew Weiner curated a marathon of must-see episodes that ran for free in the amphitheater at the Eleanor Buner Monroe Film Center. The discussion with Weiner and the cast, punctuated with clips from Mad Men, was unsurprisingly a nostalgic look back at a landmark show. Let's go now to the conversation celebrating Mad Men. Well, uh, thank you all for being here. I'm sure, as you can see, People are very thrilled by your appearance. And uh, we're going to go right to these clips. Now, uh, all of these people nominated several clips to uh, the Lincoln Center here, and they're not exactly sure which ones got picked every time. So instead of setting them up, we're just going to show the clip and start our conversation after that, first with the person who picked it, and then hopefully kind of an interplay of everybody on stage. Uh, this first clip uh, was from Mr. Weiner. And it's uh, from the fifth season, uh, an episode called Mystery Date. And uh, let's roll it. In this first clip from season five, titled Mystery Date, Peggy extorts $400 from Roger for overtime work. Now, I have a suspicion why you might have picked that, but I want to hear the real answer. What is the reason you chose that? Um, I always wanted to hear that scene in front of an audience. Really? Yeah. Right, yeah. I, uh, I, you know, my background is in comedy. I have, uh, Lizzie's not here, but I have, you know, six of the funniest people in the entire world working on the show. They are all comedians. They all have great timing. And you can write a scene that has, like, a real comic drive to it. 
And yes, I'm a little bit, I, I was a little bit fascinated with negotiating at that point in my, in my life and wanted to sort of <laughs> investigate the, the uh, different aspects of it. It's really the only place it kind of showed up in the show. But um, I mean, come, you know, just to so people understand like, Roger and, and Peggy's characters really don't know each other for a long time in the show. Like, why would they? At first, she's Don's secretary, and she's not um, uh, scantily clad enough to interest Roger. And then, you know, by the time he's like calling her Jimmy Olsen, you know, and, and, then, and then eventually he needs her. And I just, I just love the comic attitude. And I, I have to tell you something, this is one of those scenes, and I looked at what was picked. The, these, the, the thing that people don't understand, and it may not matter even to the performers, but you pick two takes with these people. We do, this, we do this scene over and over as much as we can afford it. You know, to do, there's not a lot of rehearsal, they prepare a lot at home, and then you pick a couple of takes. And that, that what, what I'm trying to say is the, the wonder of not having to, uh, I mean, and they do different things in different takes and different kinds of things, but the energy of, the, uh, of, of people working together who are having a ball. They, they, am I right, John? You did enjoy doing this scene. Very much. Yeah. I, I was down on the set, and I, I, I remember just thinking it was hilarious. Well, Lizzie, you know, you, you, yeah, you do five takes, she'll, she'll do five different things, which is all you really want, you know, on film, Yeah. for my money. Why do it the same way twice? And it's a great scene, so yeah, we had a lot of fun. You know, your character specifically, from the kind of the sketch that you received when you started the show, the person you thought this character would be to where it is now, mm -hmm. how different is that in your mind? Or did the trajectory kind of follow what you anticipated? Is this the person that you always thought this character would be? Um, well, uh, no. I mean, who could have figured that, that <laughs> Roger would be the guy to go through all he's gone through? Although, when you look back, he's sort of, he, he, he's sort of the logical choice for a lot of it. But no, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't have guessed LSD and, 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 you know, blackface and all the things. I mean, I don't think, I don't think though, though I, any of us could have anticipated where this thing was going to go. I mean, I know John and Matt sit down and kind of map it out, or Matt tells John what's going to happen. None of us really know. Blackface was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. The truth thank comes, you for, the truth thank comes you out. for taking credit for that. Finally, I God. protected you all this time. I called you. I remember I called you. I said, "Would you do this?" <laughs> so I'm, you did I'm make. Sorry, said, "Would I do welcome. this?" <laughs> you did say, like, when we were doing it, you're like, "This is like the this is the last day of my career." <laughs> you, 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 I said that so many times. I know. <laughs> like, wow, there goes my whole. No. Um, I remember you told me about it at a party. The, the, every year we have a like, kind of kick off the season. Everybody comes back to town, get together and have a drink. And Matt has been writing for a couple of months and he's very excited about whatever it is he's working on that day. And he, despite his uh, renowned secrecy, he'll tell you everything that's in his head right then. And you're just trying to keep up. And I'm standing there and I'm about to leave and he goes, wait, I have to tell you something. You're gonna sing my old Kentucky home in blackface at a country club on Derby Day. And I'm like, great, I gotta go, bye. And then I'm in the car on the way home thinking, what the fuck, what are, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will, then, I will say that that was, I, I'm not a good actor in any way, but that was a calculated decision to tell you at that moment, to break it in that way. 
because there was a lot of controversy in the writer's room, too. We had a lot of new writers who were kind of like, you can't do this. And I was like, well, you know, it, I think that that season takes place in 1963, and blackface was not removed, at least from the Philadelphia uh, po police parade, until 1968 or something. And it was just such a big part. And, why, and that episode was so much about, you know, white people, what they're like when they're alone. And so I just felt it was... Uh, the amazing thing is, is that you, you made it more, more charming than, uh, than we had planned on it. That was not my idea. That was also John's idea. I, I remember getting out of... Yeah, yeah, charm it up. I remember, I remember being, coming out of a van, like, just saying, well, we did tests. We were like, there were pictures of sitting in front of the mirror, like, you know, is this the way it's supposed to look? You know, are we... I mean, oh, my God, you know right. and, and not makeup, it had to be shoe polish, which is also... Gives you pimples. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't. I've um, never no. done it, I'm, because I am a politically correct person. <laughs> First person I saw, I was like, well, okay, so then you're there, and you're standing there waiting around. <laughs> you know, you're, the, we were shooting at a location, so we had to drive there, and I'm in blackface, and I'm standing around like, <laughs> you know. So I said, well... Can we just wait till they're ready to go before we <laughs> get there? I don't want to go there and there's 200 extras at this thing. And can we just like, just make sure they're ready to go? So they said, okay, everybody's ready, let's go. So we drive over there in the van. I open the door of the van and there's literally like a six foot six black motorcycle cop. LA motorcycle cop is the first person that opens the van and he looks at me like, what? He couldn't really figure what the hell he was looking at. <laughs> And uh, that's the way. And then, and then we have a very diverse crew, yeah. and everyone understood what was happening, and that it was a period piece, and it was not pleasurable for anyone. No, it was not. It was one of these things where it was. It's probably, uh, obviously, very similar to watch, watching people walk around in Nazi uniforms, where you're just like, really, I'm, I'm at work. I know yeah. this is, but it, the extras it, in it was which summer in particularly was. I said, well, it's too bad they didn't shoot the other, the extras first. Yeah. <laughs> we played the first version singing and everybody was like... <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember looking at Rich Summer, who was the same, just like, he has the funniest face. Anyway, he like, does. <laughs> was part of the... Uh, first of all, I wish we were showing this clip. Uh, I know. Second of yeah, all, uh, when one. you're saying there was a lot of tension in the writer's room, Obviously, there would be some people saying this is just offensive, but was there any, uh, like, did anyone make the argument that perhaps <coughs> like they this would become... Like they name on the yeah, script? Or yeah. just, no, but that this would become too memorable, that it would overshadow everything else in the episode. It or, did you know. not. It yeah. did not make much of a dent at all, actually. Yeah. It was kind of... It was so well established that this was part of the framework of that time, and it was so clear that we were criticizing it, but we had to do it, to, we had to live through doing it to criticize mm. it. And most importantly, the person who has the hardest time with it is Don and Pete. And uh, the audience sees, I think, where our point of view is on this. Mm. That it's, you know, that, that episode in particular has a, is a really about class and really like, it's sort of like a Midsummer Night's Dream. There's like the princes and there's like the gentles and there's like the mechanicals or whatever. Mm. People stuck in the office. And that, that's where Don's character meets Conrad Hilton where they're kind of like, you don't know it's him, but it's sort of on the outside of it. It was about class. And to me, this was, you know, uh, in the dumbest version of, you know, Nero fiddles while Rome burns. They have their own, you know, degenerate lifestyle. Well, yeah, Pete's role in all this is always interesting because he's the most classically uh, rich, the most kind of classically blue blood. And yet, 
especially issues with race, he consistently seems the most outspoken. With everything. Upset. Yeah. With everything. I yeah. think, and this is my, my hat if I had it, off to New York City. Um, for some reason or other, New York City, wealthy New Yorkers have been very responsible when it comes to, and I will use the word freely, liberalism and equality and whether it was the Rockefellers on the Republican side or, you know, that this is a tradition that goes back to the Roosevelts of, you know, whether they're supporting equality, integration, f for, you know, funding the Civil War, all of this um, comes from New York City and Pete is in that tradition where there is a, it could be Methodism, you don't even know what the religious background is for it, but there is a, a belief in, in <clears throat> fairness. Certainly didn't come from Peter Stuyvesant, I know that, but after that. <laughs> okay. Um, That's what Pete is. Pete is a, is a New York liberal. Uh, we're moving on to the next clip now, which is from the first No season. applause for liberalism? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. We are doing a history show here. <laughs> this next clip is from the first season. And uh, what happens in it will seem like something now you're very kind of aware of and comfortable with. But at the time, uh, I think it was very surprising to most people who watched the show. Uh, I, maybe some people saw subtext that this was coming, but uh, for the most part, this was kind of a hinge moment on, in, for the relationship of two of the characters in Mad Men. So let's go to clip two. From the episode title Babylon from season one, Joan and Roger are in a hotel room and he gives her a bird and viewers first learn of their affair. Uh, so this obviously is when the audience realizes that they have this relationship. Um, you know, if this happened in reality, of course, there's a lot of problematic aspects of this, but almost everyone who watches the show really likes your interaction and wants you to be together. Um, I'm curious if you have any theories as to why that is. <laughs> There's, I mean, to, uh, to me, um, I mean, I, I believe John and I both chose that scene. Um, I mean, obviously, there's this amazing chemistry that was written into it, and John and I have it as actors, and, and um, I think there's, you listen to the, the writing in this scene, and, you know, this was episode five of season one. So this was, for, for, for me, the first time I was discovering all these things about Joan. And it, Joan will say something to Roger, and it's toying with him, and it's sort of testing the grounds, and he'll come back and compliment her, and then insult her, and then she'll go, I don't need you. I don't, I, I'm not interested. I've got this amazing life. And he's like, well, so do I. But I was thinking about this. And it's just nonstop. And it's so juicy. And they're both putting out little, like, Skittles for each other. And Skittles. then, I don't know, I was thinking of, like, <laughs> e that's Reese's Pieces. I was thinking yeah, well, of E.T. Yeah. I don't know. That doesn't, that doesn't apply Taste either. Taste the rainbow. <laughs> I was, like, chasing, like, little... Um, and and they're, they're just never telling each other the truth. But, the, but they're, it's titillating and, and they're, I don't know, I just, and they continued that relationship, you know. I mean, it became more grounded, but I think that was, that scene was the start of what became a very, very long and interesting and very um, sort of delicious relationship that went through all the seasons. Um, 
You know, chemistry is a word that's thrown around a lot. I, I, I think. I think you're right. I think it is the writing, um, but I also think you have to find someone who's willing to see what's there, you know, to, to experiment. To I mean, I don't know how long we took to shoot that. I mean, obviously there was more than that, but you know, and we didn't really know each other very well, and um, that's a difficult aspect to part of what we do is that you know you're thrown into a hotel room, you're not wearing any pants, and they said. This, have you met Christina? And then you, and then you get into bed, and you're like, oh man. Um, yeah, it sounds a lot terrible. Of, I know. <laughs> yeah, I would always come down and say to John Hamm, I was like, your job is so much better than mine. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I mean, anyone would want to be in that situation, but it can be difficult. It can be intimidating. It can be. There's a lot of people around. It's not very. Anyway. I guess the point is, is, is a willing partner is what you need. And that's what I found immediately in uh, Christina. And that's all you can ask for. It, it was really early in the show. And I actually, I don't, I think you were having a, a bad day, I recall. That you, do you remember that? Christina. I remember that. Me? Christina was, and, and we were totally behind. I know it, yeah. And, and this scene was like, and, and you know, People come to work and they play hurt all the time. They can be sick, they can be having a hard time, whatever. And there was uh, uh, not that much drama to it other than, you know, I'm going down there and I've got my fingers crossed that this plan for the most powerful man in the office and the most powerful woman in the office to have this illicit relationship that's going to color everything. And that the scene would start with us thinking that he's talking to his wife and that it would be very matter of fact that the relationship, all of the, I hate exposition, and it's all coming out here like long after it's occurred, you know, how long they've been together, how it works, and, what, and his plan to make something more serious of it, but he's not making more serious of it. And you've got all these plans for how it's gonna work into the architecture, introducing Carol, the roommate who had a, a significant role later in the, in the same season. Um, and then you just watch these two people do this scene. And uh, Andrew Bernstein directed this, and I think it's the last episode that Phil was the cinematographer on. And John and I were just talking about this, Phil Abraham, who became a director on the show. I actually think that this episode is the best work he ever did as a cinematographer, including the pilot and everything. This has got the thing at the end in the club with Midge, where he's got that shot through her. And Andrew Bernstein had a lot to do with it, too, but Phil is really a remarkable cinematographer. And it, it was a lot to do with like, how good we wanted the show to look. And just the choreography of them going, it was written in that, they kept, that she would constantly be trying to escape from him. But the fact that it was, here's the funny thing. This is what, where you take the idea of like necessity as the mother invention. This is, how long was this scene? Six, like five pages? It's a long scene. That was to save money. We have one set, we have two actors, how interesting can we make these five minutes of the show? And you get, to, you get to do a little play, but you are all the sex appeal, all I'm on, I'm on, we're on basic cable, no nudity, no grinding, no cleavage, no, uh, no nothing. Can't hear a toilet flush. <laughs> and I think, you know, that proved what we wanted to prove, which is that that's like one of the hottest things I've ever seen on, in any medium. It's just a very 
as a voyeur, it's a very sexually like charged scene. You know, and as that's them. Yeah. That's all them. And as this is and good of, costumes. Yeah. <laughs> as this is kind of unspooled over the seasons, Joan has always, at least in my view, been in kind of control of this relationship. Is that just a choice that you made, or is that essential for this to work? Does it, does it need that's a, that's yeah. insane. You disagree? I do with not that? agree. Yes, I do okay. not agree. I oh no, that's fine. I don't agree. With uh, uh, that. Joan is in control of everything. She is not in control of this relationship. Really? Joan is a person who I, I believe, and you could speak to this better than I can if you want to. I, I feel like Joan's the person that whatever ends up happening was what she wanted and that she's made the best of this. Um, but, you know, she, I, I think he stayed married. All of a sudden, we got to play it when he found out she was getting married, when, when she found out he was getting married again. You know, every one of these things, I don't think Joan has had, you know, she decided to have a baby. She, they got pregnant together during this affair, and he totally did not, he had one opportunity even to accompany her to, you know, he, he just never, ever came through at the right time. But they love each other, and he's got this, I, I believe that she loves him, but... I don't think she's ever had control really? of it. Well, in the sense that she's rejecting yeah. him, but he's, he's always there. She has a horrible weakness for him. I think in the first couple seasons, if he had said, if he'd gotten on one knee and asked her, she would have said yes in a heartbeat. Absolutely. It broke her heart when he fell in love with Jane. Yeah. It absolutely destroyed her. And later on, she started to protect herself. And he, he came back. But she knew he was never going to stick around anyway. She, she knew him too well at that point. He didn't discover until season six that other people had thoughts. <laughs> that's not John Slattery at all. But that's Roger. Thank goodness LSD opened his mind. <laughs> Okay, well, I misread that entirely. No, Moving I can't. Into the, uh, no, I, uh, no, that's totally that's cool. Artist. Yeah, I, you know, hey. Other people may agree I, with you. I can't argue She's with so, you about your show. No, uh, I, uh, of course uh, you can. Uh, no, it's uh, never stopped anybody. But I can't win. Yeah, it's okay. No, uh, not in this uh, scenario. Uh, uh, moving to the third clip now, Rob, from an episode called The Suitcase. And there's one extremely... Oh, see, I... Yeah. It's good to hear the people from Samsonite are yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's one particularly memorable scene from this, which maybe some of you were unconsciously clapping for, but I don't think this is the scene we're going to see. I think we're going to see a different one. Uh, and, uh, the end credits. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's go to it. From the episode The Suitcase from season four, this is a scene at a bar where Don and Peggy are talking about life, and she talks about the baby she gave away. So, uh, explain your selection. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I really liked uh, the whole episode because we really kind of learned a lot about, about the, the relationship that these two characters developed over the, over the course of, in this, at this point, four seasons. And... Um, there's so much in that scene that is not directly said um, that, I, that, you, that you kind of absorb. It's this weird, they, they know what they're talking about, but they're not saying. Anyway, about that kid you had back in season one. Remember that time? Um, it's obliquely mentioned, like you 
do when you're drinking and you're talking in a bar and there's some other thing going on and someone else is in your space and you don't want people to hear or understand. And for me, it just showed this incredible mutual um, respect that we hadn't really seen uh, in, in, in so many ways. And I, I just really, obviously it foreshadows the end of the, of the, of the episode as well, but um, it, was, it was just a really nice kind of, as, as Matt was saying, this little play of these two people sitting in a bar when something else is going on. I loved how the sound design kept that boxing match loud uh, because it was on at the bar. People wanted to hear it. Um, and and it's, it was kind of this very intimate conversation that was happening about very personal things that you kind of were fighting with a, with a boxing match to, to hear. Um, and it was, I don't know, it, it was a very um, genuine, um, sweet um, interaction between these two people. And funny, as, as that's the, you know, Matt said it on more than one occasion, but there's, there's so many kind of emotional things that are, uh, I think, made more emotional by the fact that someone says something, usually on purpose, but sometimes not, hilarious in the middle of it. My mother hates you. Like, she thinks, <laughs> she thinks you're the guy. I'm like, wow, that's awful. <laughs> um, but it's just those things. It's, it's, it's a conversation that these two people probably have meant to have for three years and just didn't until this moment. Um, and they care about each other enough to have it in a way where they're not pulling it out of each other. They're letting they're letting each other come to the, come to the table and, and discuss. Um, so that's what I liked about it. Um, this is almost more of a technical question, I guess, but you mentioned the boxing sound, the sound of the boxing match. How different is it to actually see the scene when it happens as opposed to the experience you have of making it? Like when you finally see that scene, I don't know what, what point you do see a finished scene like that. If it, uh, does it take on a totally different context in any way? or? I think it's rarely in a. It's rarely as surprising as something like a totally different context. Obviously, it can be cut together in a way that you're maybe pleasantly surprised at how it how it worked or how how differently. But Matt hews very closely to the script. What's in the script is generally what you see. There's not surprise. We're going to cut out yeah. of that scene and all of a sudden go to a monkey fucking a football. Like it's not. <laughs> uh, but only because yeah. we're we're TV 14. Yeah. We can't show that. That's um, one of the things on the list. That was written, but we didn't shoot it. it no, we, right. I mean, written. we can't. I mean, maybe on the DVD. <laughs> it's the cutest monkey. We have a logo. And the we have greatest a logo. football. <laughs> um, You're going to no, sell I, this there's, series. <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing that, uh, I think, really jarring about it, but you are reminded, of course, uh, about how many people that you work with how, how excellent they are at their jobs. Matt mentioned Phil Abraham, who was our uh, director of photography for the, for the pilot and the first half of the first season and basically established the look uh, of the show from a cinematic standpoint. And, um, and you know, everybody from, from uh, set designers to, to set dressers to, to people 
Um, everyone's working at such a wonderful level that when you do finally see what's in the frame, because outside of the frame there are C-stands and guys with pants hanging down and butt cracks and yeah. flip-flops and, you know, uh, and guys eating sandwiches and stuff like that. That's all outside of the frame, but inside of the frame is this beautiful little painting that makes sounds and makes you think as well. So, um, and that's what we're all there for, is to get that, that frame And it exactly takes a long right. time to like watch the show and not see that stuff. I don't know how it is for the actors, but for me, because I see it even more times through editing and sound mixing and stuff like that, to, to see these clips tonight and totally forget, and I'm, I'm not on the set all the time. So this was a show that was like shown to me, and the direct, Jennifer Gessner directed it, and Tom Wilson cut it, this where I was just like, I knew about the script, I knew about, the, I'd seen the location, I'd seen the sort of set deck and all that stuff, but I had no idea what they had pulled off for, and this was our, our saving money episode. <laughs> There's a thing called, in, in television called a bottle show. And I had, a bottle show is a show that sort of takes place with, with, where you limit the, the elements in the show. It could all be in one location with as few people as possible to sort of, let's do an episode that we can save money on because you're averaging out the price of the sets and the actors and everything over the course of the season. And that is the wisdom. It always comes down from on high. Do a bottle show. Try and cut some corners. Write a play. Write a two-person play for us that takes place in the toilet and we'll shoot it and we'll get it done. And you always try and do it and it is always the most expensive episode that you've ever done. <laughs> you don't want it to be. It's not childishness. You really want it to work that way, but this became a thing where it was just like, and then everybody gets kind of excited because this was a special script mm. and uh, a script that was not planned at the beginning of the season. It was like a, it was, it was for those of you who write on the internet, the suitcase is what we call filler. <laughs> um, it wasn't, I mean, it was like an extra episode that didn't really advance the story except for it told the entire relationship of these two people. And what I love about this scene was we made a list in the writer's room before we did this. And you know, I, my name's on the script. A lot of people are involved in this. And a lot of writers of everything that had not been talked about because so much of the show depends on people not talking to each other. It is my belief that despite the fact that people become friends and especially just because they work together does not mean that they are intimate on any level. That is a television wish fulfillment that you know uh, nobody eats alone, as my friend says. And so one of the things was, doesn't Peggy wonder why Don has never hit on her? It's so insulting. Especially season four where he does it, he seems to be the least picky he's ever been. <laughs> where he, is, he has had, this is, these are not my words, by the way. And, and where he has like had a, a couple episodes before, the previous episode to this, he has been with two women in one night and has no recollection of even encountering the second woman <laughs> and takes a Silkwood shower afterwards. <laughs> and, and so wh why you never looked at me that way? That was one of the questions. You never looked at me that way. And I love that the audience had to know that they were talking about her baby. That's what, that's what we've been lucky enough to have on the show is an audience that keeps track of that. The actors always know and they, and they sell it. They appreciate the subtlety of that. I, I mean, I, I always want to write that way. I'm embarrassed by exposition. But the fact that you were kind of hoping that the audience would say like, John says like, you're no example of moral virtue that we know that he's saying like, I know everything about you. Hmm. 
Uh, you made a few references to hating exposition. Is a lot of the rewriting process for you eliminating dialogue and eliminating things that, that you feel will seem too heavy-handed or too obvious? No, I, I, I actually uh. construct the show that way. Uh. It's one of the things that embarrasses me. And sometimes I'm just like, what's Shakespeare did it? Here we are in sunny Spain. Why don't I just do it? But I, I am embarrassed by it. It takes me out of the story. I, as a writer, can see the wheels turning, and I don't like that first moment of, of pain, of like, uh, how long have we known each other? Yeah. You know? Yeah. In fact, it's really hurt me pushing for reality. I think, it, I think it drives the audience away from the experience. I think it pulls them out of it. That's why I always hate it. Uh, but, I mean, they don't call each other by name. And, you know, I have people who are like, I love Mad Men. I've seen every episode. My favorite character. I've seen every episode three times. My favorite character is the guy with the white hair. <laughs> and I was like, Roger? And they're like, right, Roger Sterling. And because no one keeps talking about Roger. They don't say, hey, Roger, how you doing? You got to do that in a, in a drama. Hey, Roger, how's it going? Hey, Don, how you doing? Roger, blah, blah, blah. And they, they got, you know, I don't do it. And we kind of paid the price for it in a way that they, well, that they don't know it. But it also works to your advantage in some ways, particularly at the beginning of seasons when people are trying to figure out what year it is. Yeah. And I think that typically in television, they really try to have something happen within the first five minutes that tells you when yeah. it is. And you've been very good about not doing that. And it almost sort of adds like an exploratory aspect I to I think the it's audience. entertaining. Yeah. That's what I think it is. Hmm. I enjoy being mystified. I enjoy being confused for a moment because it's so much more satisfying when you're illuminated. I enjoy the idea that there is conflict because then it will be resolved. Uh, people who are getting along great together, who have wonderful marriages and great relationships with their children, make a ton of money, are satisfied their by their work, are not good entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that, it's, that's it. Yeah. Uh, we're going on to the next clip now, which was picked by uh, John and January. And uh, I think this is particularly interesting because it's a scene can I, that... Can, I, can no. I just go ahead one more thing here sure. I want to ask John about? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Like, you gauged no. your... You guys do not shoot this in order. You talk about your imagination with the radio and everything like that. You don't shoot these scenes in order. We rarely get to, right? So how did you gauge your drunkenness over the court? Seriously. I was stunned when I saw it. I go, he really is getting drunker and drunker. And, like, over a week... Uh, no, I mean, well, it's part of the awareness of just being aware. I was, I was reminded of that, too, because uh, I had forgotten that we get progressively hammered throughout that uh, episode. But, yeah, it was definitely a, a production note, and we were reminded that this is a certain point in the evening, and we should be, you know, a certain level of, of drunkenness, which for Don is uh, <laughs> A blurred line at best. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely a part of it because you want, you know, that's, it's a drunken conversation. Things spill out and things are mentioned that probably wouldn't be had everyone been uh, a little more sober. So that's a part of, of, of the story to get across is that, hey, by the way, we probably wouldn't be saying this if we were just sitting in an airport. That's a good point that I'd never thought of. You play a guy who is often drunk. So is there a way to play drunk to someone who's really a veteran at it that is different than playing in, you know, any other in a play or a film where someone just drinks too much? Like, how do you, what are the keys to making people believe that this guy is drunk and he's pretty cool with it? And he's, <laughs> that he can still drive a car, he can still fix plumbing or whatever he's doing, you know, it's like, that he can do this. 
Well, because you can't slur your words, that would make it seem fake. It know? helps to be on a television show yeah. when you don't actually have to do any yeah. of that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, I think, think they can do a lot of things when they're drunk. Yeah. They <laughs> generally can't. Uh, but uh, no, it's it's uh, you know, Foster Brooks. You got to watch <laughs> the old days. Um, no, it's it's an interesting um, dichotomy because. The, the, the era of the lovable drunk is, I think, f is firmly in the rearview mirror at this point. And, uh, you know, Don is an alcoholic. He is a, uh, you know, as, as, is, is known now as a person with a pretty severe disease. And it's way less adorable in, in sort of modern culture. Uh, it, was a, it, was, it was risky yeah. that season. We talked about this beforehand. I'm like, if I show... What we showed in, in season four with Don in the wake of his divorce, just, you know, you thought he was drunk before. You've never seen him like this. Um, and to a certain point where John said to me, right before the suitcase, John Hamm said to me, he's like, just wondering how much worse is it going to get? It's, and I'm like, a little bit worse. <laughs> he's like, oh. Because, you know, this is a physical experience. All of these people commit themselves like athletes. They are athletes. To the, to the emotional feelings of the characters. Mm. They don't live with them every day, but they live with them during those scenes and they live with them after them and they live with them when they're prepping. So you should never just say somebody bursts into tears and not be ready for the fact that a human being is gonna have to actually do that. They may be able to, you may be able to never do that, so they have this magical gift. On the other hand, you, they usually are feeling sad <laughs> when they do it and that's a reality. Um, but anyway, uh, I don't remember what I was talking about, but all I can tell you is that <laughs> like being, being, being gauging, telling the audience that Don's drinking is not so much fun, I was like, am I ruining the show? Hmm. You know? and, and to your point, it's, it's, uh, to, to, to do it, especially as long as uh, we've had to do it, especially during that season, which was, as Matt said, very, very much of a downward spiral, is, is, you know, is, takes a toll. Um, it's really no fun to be miserable all day. Well, and it's strange how a, a, a huge segment of the audience wants you to be more transgressive. I mean, they're really drawn to that, so I suppose that is a complicated thing. They yeah. don't yeah. know yeah. what they like. Yeah. They, they will only watch... Yeah. No, seriously, Until you watch see it. it kind of, yeah, yeah, you're like, I, I, I've had enough of that. Yeah. Yeah. I've had enough of that. Yeah. What? Yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> John Hamm no longer just tells me privately that I shouldn't be saying things. <laughs> um, okay, well, we better move on then. And now what, I was going, what I was going to say about this scene from the first season, uh, which I think is fascinating about it, is I bet a lot of people in here have kind of forgot that this happened. Uh, but it, at the time, it seemed like an incredibly critical moment. So uh, play this uh, clip. You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Film Society app, now available for iOS, iPhone, and iPad, and Android devices, lets you browse and discover our year-round programs and films, get the latest ticketing alerts and breaking festival news, share with friends via social media, create your own custom schedule, and more. Download the Film Society app for free at iTunes and Google Play. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. And now, back to our program. From the episode Red in the Face, Season 1, Roger Corner's Betty in the Kitchen, 
flirting with her, he says, when I go to bed tonight, I'll think all about you. Oh, I would like to see that. That's my car. <laughs> not the hot pants. Yeah. What? Just hot, not the. I know. <laughs> I oh, thought it was we the wrong. hot pants. I remember. I it. think you just said the hot pants all the time because you thought it was so funny. Yeah. Mm. Uh, this was part of Christina the reason. Christina left. Oh. She said yeah. she was offended by that scene and yeah. she left. <laughs> uh, when I'd asked earlier about, you know, could you imagine the trajectory of your character, I realized that's an impossible question. But part of the reason I asked it was because during this period, you seem like a more troubling, less likable person because of this. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 you know you got, what do you because mean? at the time, you know, it, 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 I think, Not the character. Yeah, yeah. The, you. Sorry. Uh, uh, were you surprised that this was part of the narrative, or did you kind of see this coming uh, as either of you, you know? Uh, I did not yeah. see it coming. Yeah. No, I never, I mean, I don't think any of us saw any of this coming. <laughs> I mean, you should, I, I've said this before, but the, the, the table reads were really something. Um, very electric, very funny, very unexpected, especially for the people who hadn't read the script. I mean, you know, even for those of us that had, the way they'd play, these moments would play, you'd read it, you know, you'd get it the day before, basically, in your room or sent to your house if you weren't working, and you'd read it a couple times and make sure that you didn't, you know, you knew it well enough not to screw it up mm. at the table because the writers are trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. But then there's a whole bunch of people, executives from the network and the studio and other people and, and production heads and... And I mean, it goes, it, it's amazing. And, and, and all because it's so unexpected. Um, but, you know, I, I said to Matt once, I said, you know, I, I had made a movie and, I, I, and, I, and it was difficult to make, you know, and then you, you get to the end of it and I said, I can't imagine what it, how do you create a world of seven seasons of 50 characters? And, you know, and he said, well, you, you can't look at it backwards. You know, it looks incredibly you know, complicated if you look backwards, but you don't just one moment at a time, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's advantageous to look at it now and say, didn't you see that coming? But hmm. there's no way. Uh, you know, I had asked uh, John about the idea of playing this, like, highly functioning drunk, you know, the problems of doing that. Your character has, like, an interest, uh, like, a different kind of situation, yeah, where <laughs> you're often uh, sort of portraying someone who has, is repressing a lot of highly volatile ideas that are only going to come out at certain moments. So how do you convincingly make someone believe that you are repressing things that you cannot express? Like, what is the key to making someone believe that there is something going on inside of you that is kind of trapped by the culture you're in and the relationship you're in and the life you have? Don't speak. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think she said a lot of things. Uh, the facade of her life is very important to her. And um, I think that she was, especially in the first couple of seasons, was very implosive and she would say not what she was feeling, but you could see it in her eyes. So I just tried to, to have either very little or sadness underneath, always. Hmm. Or anger. Yeah. Anger, yeah. Yeah, I, I, there, I think that there's one scene where you, I remember you break a chair. But it's always when she's alone. Like, I the shot chair. the birds alone. Yeah. I broke the chair. Yeah. I always did it alone. So, like, so the, those. <laughs> Don't get me alone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I drank alone. Yeah. yeah, I mean. The kids saw it, but you didn't know they were there. Who cares yeah. about the kids? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It well, writes itself. Yeah. They're yeah. not going to remember anything. And, uh, <laughs> and that is uh, kind of inadvertently a perfect segue for what's going to be shown right now. So go to the <laughs> next right, right. What? You know, yeah. can I just oh, say, well, oh. playing that scene with her, to, to sort of to what you're saying is, what I do remember is, I remember one of the writers on set saying, you need to be charming, otherwise, or... I, I don't know. Something wasn't clicking really, and yeah. and and it was, it was it was much more offensive. And then without I don't know what, I don't know whether anybody told you what to do, but all of a sudden there was sort of a glimmer in Betty's eye, and, and whether it was being well, flattered or there was some sort of yeah. moment that you enjoyed. Well, that's in, why I picked in, this scene too. I I didn't get to do much with John and I enjoyed myself a lot and I felt like I needed to cover that up for that scene and then I realized that it was more interesting that you realize that Betty is, in, is flattered and enjoying it and being flirted with isn't something that happens so she, so I let that come out and we giggled our way through the whole entire scene, that's why, I mean. <laughs> that's the story, I mean that was the story of the episode was that, that speech that you give about covering the brush strokes and that like, you know, it, you know Joan later says that uh, um, I was raised to be admired. I mean, Betty is someone who, her physical beauty is super important, and here's this man paying attention to her that's completely, she's just supposed to turn that off at some point in her life. Her husband is not a great husband. And I, just as from the writing standpoint, love the idea, yes, Roger has crossed a horrible boundary hitting on an employee's wife. But she was laughing at everything he said. And they did have a lot of chemistry. And they are both left-handed. <laughs> and I, and, and there's like, a, like, what's the matter? And you hear the stories about it. You, and then you grow up to be an adult. And you're like, there's chemistry between people. And there's flirtation. Roger, we know, could, could make good on this. But why wouldn't she enjoy it? I mean, and that's one of the things about, about that dynamic is that Betty has never, it was, a, it was a shock to the audience that this is a, someone with sexual appetites. She's, she's a person who, she married Don Draper because she has that. And so this is not like the cliche of like, whatever the word that was constantly used, uh, uh, frigidity, right? She is a sexual being. And so her, the, the, there's chemistry there. It's, it's titillating a little bit and Roger gets away with I ate the M and mom on the, the cake said mom on it. You know, it's just so profane. <laughs> and, and, and that's... There's so many funny lines in that script. There's so many funny <laughs> moments that, you know, that go by. There was, what was it? You went out to get the vodka and I yelled, I don't care. And I played it wrong. I still regret this. Oh, there really? aren't that many regrets, but I yelled instead of just saying, he goes, I think I have an extra bottle. <laughs> there was an empty bottle of vodka, and I said, what can we do about this sadness? And he says, I think I have more my in my golf bag. bag. And that's when he leaves to go out and before he comes back. And I say, the line is, I don't care if there's ants in it. <laughs> yeah. But I yelled there, it to him, and it wasn't funny. This was a thing where I was like, I never knew if we were going to get to do another episode of the show. I thought the season was it. And this episode in particular because I'm such uh, a pain in the ass, I broke a lot of rules that I had been taught as a writer. And I'm just like, I, I've always thought this would work. I've been working for other people my whole life. They've always told me we're not doing that. It will not work. I'm gonna try it. One of which is what happens after the scene 
is Don walks Roger to the thing, and it's so tense, and it's drawn out so much, the silence, Don clearly knows what happens. John Ham is like bristling with like rage on some level. He's feeling guilty, slattery, and there's just a series of jokes in the middle of this really dark scene, which are basically from the Jeffersons, because uh, we couldn't afford to go outside, of the door opening, and Roger's imagined walk to the off-screen walk to the car, which has some sound effects on it, where, where you say, where you say that's, uh, that's, that's it's my, my car. car. <laughs> right? And you just imagine him here, and then you hear like a cat, I think, and like some garbage pails, and I think you say, what? Lights. Your lights. Because <laughs> he's so drunk getting into the car, and then he closes the door and goes in, and they almost, he almost beats her. Oh, well, thank you. Just the oh. check. She also. Thank you. <laughs> You're so good. You know what else is great is that it isn't as cliche as he comes in when we're in a clinch. You know, it the moment is clearly passed. You know, we hear a, a, the outer door close, and then we separate, and I go to the sort of middle, and there was there's a distance between us. But it's just the fact that there's no talking, so that you come in, and we're seven feet apart from each other, and and and. It, it could be mistaken for an innocent moment, but there's no dialogue. You could totally feel it. You could feel it, but the and audience was, obviously saw what happened, and he didn't see a thing. Right. And I just think it was so smart. You know, that's, it, it's just that, that he's a very sensitive... Don is a very sensitive guy, knows what's what, obviously has the moral code that he has, and comes in and immediately... It's his knows, kitchen. ...knows what's going on, yeah. And, there, and you know... Well, and, well, what about Roger... I actually, there was an issue when the footage came in about did Don see anything or did he not see anything, and there was an urge to have him walk in a little bit earlier. And I didn't want to do it because I felt like, at least from my life experience, let's take advantage of the reality that you can feel the energy of that stuff as a human being. You can feel, especially when you're a parent, you can sense that the drawer has just been closed before you walk in the door. That the TV has just been turned off before you drove up the driveway. You know what I mean? You just know. You can tell because people behave guiltily. And they, that was the editor, because I wanted to do, I wanted to make it more obvious. I was worried that it looked like we were just saying, oh, well, Don knows, because he knows. But the editor said to me, look at them, they're so guilty. And they didn't say anything. They didn't say like, ah, oh, Don, there you are. So... Uh, okay, now we're going back to the clip I was saying. It, initially, it seemed great because she just made a joke about kids. This clip has a kid. Yeah. <laughs> right. From the episode The Wheel, season one, Betty opens up to the young Glenn who is sitting in the car, and she confesses that she is so sad. Uh, well, first of all, what did the two of you think when you watched that scene? January and I? Yeah. Well, it's, that's my kid, yeah, yeah. obviously. So. Well, I was also directing, and, and uh, it was 100 and... I remember that. It was 105 degrees in Pasadena. It's all fake. <laughs> and I was very concerned about January being overwhelmed by the heat and uh, said to her, like, are you okay? And she's like, I don't know. I don't feel so good. Can we get an umbrella out here? And all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, my kid's in that car. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, scarf. Yeah, a scarf. Yeah. Walked over, walked over, opened the door. Are you okay, Martin? Yeah. 
He's like, can, can, I, can I take off the snow pants? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not in the show. Can we get some ice? Mm. <laughs> That's why his cheeks are so red. Yes. That's not makeup. It was 100 degrees. It's 200 degrees in that car. Yeah. Yeah. It's a VW. It doesn't yeah. heat up at all. <laughs> um, I mean, how much apprehension did you have putting your kid in your show? You know what? Um, it was not my idea. Uh, so that was part of how I sort of washed my hands of it. It was, uh, it was the idea of, of uh, one of the other writers, Tom Palmer. And uh, it was my idea to pull his tooth. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> we knocked it out with a hammer. No. Uh, no, he's just like, how about Martin with those eyes? And he auditioned for it. I asked him if he wanted to do it. He auditioned with it. And he had such a innocent, detached, non, quite honestly, non-trained actor equality. And I couldn't tell. I was like, can I even tell if he's good or not? And my casting director was like, don't do it. You're inviting. This is before we even knew what would happen on the internet. Yeah. Like, they would, no one <coughs> took that into account of like, the abuse that could be out there for him just as another professional. Um, you know, uh, regular people in the school play don't have to read like your kid's awful or mm. ugly or whatever they want to write, which all of us have to deal with, you know, from the, the secret haters out there, the anonymous people. But um, I felt like he was the right person for it. And he actually had a natural gift for it. He was so shy that it was kind of strange. Um, and they had so much chemistry. <laughs> they did. <laughs> they did. And I, do you remember? Martin is I like 18. Him young, yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> you like him young? Martin is 18 now. I don't want to embarrass him or anything like that, but I've got to tell the story, which is that they, in the first scene that they, that they did together, where he walks in on her in the bathroom, and I told him that I had done this as a kid after he was like, what is wrong with this kid? I'm like, well, it's your father, just so you know. <laughs> to our babysitter. Never asked for a lock of hair, but did the other things. And um, a little boy, anybody who's honest with themselves, you do not see yourself as a non-viable alternative to a, a grown woman. You're just sort of like, how, how come I not, I, am I like invisible or something? And they're like, you're like seven. Um, you do have those feelings, at least I did, and I don't remember when they started, but they, they have not changed. Um, and, and, um, and there was something about, uh, he was supposed to hug you and put his head on her chest at the big moment when, they, when she forgave him or whatever after he cried, and he really didn't want to do it. And I said to him, I was like, just do it. And Linda, my wife, is here. She was the, the parent on set. And uh, she's, I was like, she goes, you know, he, he, would, he did it in rehearsal, but I think he's shy or whatever. And I, was, and I finally just pulled him aside. It was not the director. I was just visiting just to make everybody extra nervous. <laughs> and uh, I go, you're going to be really sorry one day. <laughs> Is that what worked? He did, never did it. Oh, he never did it. He never and did he it. And sorry. He is sorry. <laughs> We're going to reshoot that scene, though. <laughs> it's so touching now. to me. He's of age. There was a weird thing that happened, too, with this script, because we didn't know if the show was going to be picked up when we shot this. I was finally down on the set directing, which I was nervous about, but so happy to just like not have any barrier anymore in the sense, not that the director's a barrier, but just like having all that work to do. 
And I was really excited about like bringing the story to fruition. It was all the story we had. It could have been the end mm. of the series. And I just remember John Slattery pulling me aside and saying, and I was, all I want to hear is, did you like your stuff? I mean, the actors are the audience. They are the first audience. The writers see it, mm. and then the actors are the audience. Uh, they, they, they can tell with their indifference sometimes and also actually tell you, that I don't, what about this or whatever. And he goes, that line, I really don't know how long 20 minutes is. It's so amazing. Because you know he's talking about the mother and all, because it's just like the kid thing and it makes, I remember thinking like that, it's an amazing line. And the idea, never in my experience, this is not to say anything about the profession, never in my experience had an actor complimented another actor's line in my life, ever. It sounds really weird, but he had like, was talking, we were all watching the show from the outside. Mm. And that was like, it felt, it felt like, a, it was felt like a great achievement that everybody was in the story that much. Hmm. Uh, the next clip, it goes way back, even before this. This is about as early as you get, so uh, let's run it. From the season one episode, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, Joan tells Peggy to put a bag on her head and evaluate her strengths. There you go. In some ways, was it more fun to play that character early on when she was a meaner person? (laughs) Fun, yeah, maybe. Maybe the word fun, yeah. Um, But John and I just said that was day one of this whole thing. That was the very first thing. Uh, That was the very first day we shot anything from this entire series. Um, And I chose that because... um, I mean, it's just so amazing to look back and and the incredible relationship that Peggy and Joan ended up having. And and, um, Joan's so rude. She's so rude. (laughs) I mean, like, it just makes me laugh watching it. But I, you know, this was, this is the scene that I auditioned with to get this show. So it's, it's so crazy for me to watch it because you get a script and you, I, I had two scenes, and uh, two and a half scenes, two, you know, two scenes, and so, uh, and both of them were audition scenes, and so you get a script, and you have these two scenes, and you, you have to decide who this person is and who this character is, and so you're looking for every single clue that you can get in these amount of words that are on this page to develop this person. And I, I was like, okay, she's bossy, she's sexual, she's a know-it-all, um, she seems to have a sense of humor, and trying to get all these things. Um, and that was my audition. But then I look at the scene and I said, oh, but there was, I remember being so scared during the scene because there was so, it was so much about business, too. Because in my audition, I just came in and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then all of a sudden, it was like, and you got to smoke, and you got to turn, and you got to walk, and you do the thing. And, and it was just this whole bit of choreography that that first episode was a lot of. We were all moving and in and out of these. You're setting the tone of the office, and characters were wandering by, and the quick relationships between them. And, and um, it's just fun for me to remember the audition process and then see it it, uh, you know, come to fruition. And I, and I believe in business. And more even then, I, I wrote so much into the pilot because it was my thought, I don't know, somebody told me maybe, 
that actors would be better if they had more to do, and that they always feel uncomfortable about their hands, and that they don't, they, and that they, you don't want them to have to find stuff, and just like write it in, and they'll keep busy, and they'll learn the lines with it, and eventually by the end of it, they're like, I can't say that line if you make me put the glass down there, and I'm like, well, the line won't be as good if you don't put the glass down there, and all of a sudden. Uh, you're like, I think they can do it sort of on their own. <laughs> John, you wanted your first scene, which was also the same day. What did you do? You I had to walk in, take my shirt off, open the drawer, get another shirt out, to unwrap the shirt from the laundry, uh, put two Alka-Seltzer in, pour a glass of water, put two Alka-Seltzer, which used to come, by the way, in screw-top bottles. <laughs> Not just the paper. Uh, so unscrew the Alka-Seltzer, put the Alka-Seltzer in the water, wait for that. While that's fizzing, I'm taking the shirt out, unwrapping the shirt, taking the shirt off, putting the shirt on, buttoning the shirt, putting my tie back on, tying my tie, getting the Alka-Seltzer, drinking the Alka-Seltzer, lighting a cigarette, all while talking to John Slattery, who is waiting for me like a dog waiting for a treat, waiting for me to fuck up. <laughs> that is totally true. <laughs> that is totally true. And I had to miss a button because the last line of a scene is you missed, you it. missed a button. <laughs> um, so that was my first day. And we too. cut the tie part out of it eventually, <laughs> and I felt so bad. I'm like, I don't think we have time for him to tie that tie, even though he did it really fast. And I feel like I'm ripping him off because, man, was that impressive. And they're like, just cut him tying the tie. <laughs> I remember the physicality of it so much, just as you do. Um, that I actually, if, I bet if you looked very, very closely, that my hand was shaking. I was so nervous lighting that cigarette and walking and getting it done, like you said, like walking, walking through the office, right. getting there, blah, blah, blah. And then I had to like light it. And these old-fashioned lighters are not, the, they don't always light. And so you're just hoping, and it was, I was like, <laughs> and trying to be cool as can be, and I was like, I think my and you can't my, breathe in the outfit, <laughs> right? Wasn't there something like that? That that was a very constricting suit. No suits, yes. Suit. <laughs> suit was, of character. I, well, it was that dress. I think that that sort of created like the Joan walk. Yeah. It was literally just me trying to get from one side of the room to the other. <laughs> that is the, that is really the most movement there is in in the in the show. And from what I remember was, um, Alan Taylor directed, he did a great job. We moved in a lot closer than where his natural tendency was, and we're covering a very small amount of ground. But it really looks like it's busy. He was great at that, and we had great ADs who like, got all the, and the, all the extras and everything. But what I really remember was, in between when I had written the pilot and when we made it in that seven years, the West Wing had come on the air. And I was very wary about this whole walk and talk sort of vibe. And I had you guys slow down a lot. And I said, nobody talks without looking at each other. And not realizing how hard it is to walk towards things without looking <laughs> where you are. But they did it. And it, it felt more realistic to me. I love the stylization of the West Wing, obviously. But there's, a, there's repetition in it and rhythm and stuff like that. And I didn't want it to feel that way. And Alan kind of talked me into this. But what I think is incredible is that my intention when I was all alone writing the pilot was that she was somehow channeling Helen Gurley Brown. And that paper bag speech is from Sex in the Office. And there's um, the whole thing, the mother and the secretary, all of it. It is, you could hear Cosmo knows all. You can hear Helen Gurley Brown's 
incredible you know, voice in that. And then when Christina came in, it was not at all what I imagined. And I just loved the, I, I don't know, you're, yes, she's bossy, all these other things. She is so well-meaning when she is bringing this, this young girl from the countryside and she's into the world of the courtesan. That's really what it felt like. That's why that exotic music's there. That was David Carbonara's idea, the composer, who helped us on the pilot for nothing, just to sell it to the network. And, and I just, I remember thinking, seeing the two of them walk together, because it was only two scenes. Mm -hmm. And again, back to what does the audience want and what do they not want, and I was like, I'm sure of one thing. They want to see more of those two people talking to each other. <laughs> we did not give them enough. Maybe they'll come back next week. Uh, you mentioned the physicality. Just something just occurred to me that I've always wondered about. How much of the cast actually smokes? Like, like do you do many On any of, given day? Um, I'm saying for real. They buy cigarettes and they smoke them even when they're not making a TV show. Like how many packs a day? Or? No, well, yeah. Like, <laughs> I, or I just, how many lighters uh, a day? <laughs> yeah. Like, do, it goes in and out. I think that's a, uh, uh, is something that's, we, we don't want the world to know. No, this, it's private. It, I mean, it, well, you know, kind of, some yeah. people. Well, a lot of people <laughs> yeah. have smoked, and they yeah. reach a certain age, and they stop, yeah. and then they quit again. And what else it is? People struggle with smoking, mm. and I had a rule that no one could fake smoke on the set if they'd never smoked, because I would have actors come on, and first thing they do is grab a pack of cigarettes, and they'd just be like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And I'm just like, don't, don't. Uh, you haven't smoked, have you? Yeah. No, but it looks great. And I'm like, it really doesn't yeah. look good at all. Yeah. And, and made the horrible mistake with Aaron Staten, who plays Ken Cosgrove, where I was like, you have never smoked before. You look terrible at it. And he goes, well, I, I did actually. I smoked for like 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally was like, like that? <laughs> like, I think I actually said, like a douchebag? <laughs> And he's the sweetest person in the world. And he goes, do you remember? He still brings it up. He goes, remember that time you told me that I smoke like a douchebag? And so it, and, and it became this thing. Then I, then I was like, if that's the way he does it, and he always does it that way, because you're really looking for a consistency of character, I would just write it in all the time. And you can see them sort of giving him a hard time on his screen smoking frequently in the scenes. You can actually see it. But um, this show does not advocate smoking. Uh, uh, and it, seriously, I know, I know, I know. People cough. I wrote the pilot to get away from it, but it is my theory that it is extremely addictive and very dangerous. That and smoking is addictive. Smoking is addictive. It's a good theory. Yeah. They came out. The, it, yeah, came out. A lot of research have you done on your own? It came out in the nineties. The, yeah. the tobacco companies yeah. finally they did yeah. some research. They found out that that actually is 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 detrimental to your health. Ah man. And uh, I do not advocate it, and uh, none of us want to appear to be advocates of it, but, you know, personal things, what they are, I, I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to okay. answer I, for them, because I feel like it's like a... I didn't realize it was that ball. It's it is. It, like it is. It's a... kind of like a, it's a very personal, <laughs> uh, despite the fact that you have to go outside in the middle of the, the <laughs> winter, a private thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, next clip here, uh, very pivotal one, important in the trajectory of the show. Let's go to it. From the season three episode, The Gypsy and the Hobo, Betty finally confronts Don about his real identity. <clears throat> uh, that's a great scene. 
and this is kind of a complicated question, but I think it's an important one. Um, you know, early on, this dichotomy between the real Don Draper and the false life, the life he took on, the person he actually was, depending on how you look at it, that was really the crux of the story, that this person was really two people. Um, as, the season has, as the seasons have moved on, it's less sort of out front, but does that still kind of inform everything this character does? Do you always have to sort of consciously think to yourself, either writing or acting, that what I'm about to pursue or what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do is coming from a person who totally reinvented himself you know, in, in a literal way? Like, is it, does, it, does it still kind of come up with everything? Or is it something that happened to the character and now we've moved on to this new person and that's who you are? Uh, yeah. Everybody knows, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think it's, it's a, you're right in, in to say that it was a big, a big narrative moment in the show, obviously, and then what do you do when that bomb has exploded? Uh, well, you sort of pick up the pieces and people, few people have known various versions of that throughout the, throughout the story, but I mean, consciously as a choice, obviously, people act differently when they're around different people from different parts of their life. You might act differently when you're with your high school friends or back in your hometown or whatever. So the, there, there is a, a version of that, of, of yes, when this person is confronted with someone who knows him as Dick Whitman and knows him as the, the, the real person who he is, of course he's going to be, a, be that person, be that different person. Uh, my sort of conscious construct of Don Draper in the office was that this was a man who would put on a suit of armor every day. He was literally putting someone else's clothes on and someone else's persona on and walked around that office like he fucking owned it because he had to believe that first or no one else was going to. Um, and so when you see in the first couple of seasons when he goes back to California to visit Anna or to see the, his past, you see it all melt away. And you see this completely different person who, who sits differently and stands differently and is differently because he doesn't have to worry about that shit. And so when that matter and that antimatter come together, he's, you know, it's very, it's, he's being Dick Whitman in Don Draper's clothes. He's completely confused and he can barely speak and he, can, he can't put words. This is a guy who speaks for a living. He cannot put two sentences together because he's completely at a loss. Your, your name is Chuck Klosterman. Have you ever had the urge to change your name? I, I Matthew uh, Weiner, thought, I, God knows I should have. Uh, right? Well, I mean, technically my name isn't Chuck Klosterman. Oh, what yeah. is it? I mean, actually it is Charles. I guess it's to an extent. I'm no, but go. people call but, you that. But do I have a total, would I have ever desired a totally different name? I guess not. If Kirk no. Douglas was Isidore uh, DeWittowitz, yeah. he had no issue, or did he, and, and he says to Betty, you changed your name. I've always thought about that. And it's part of the story of the 20th century. You know, um, it's part of the malleability of, of American culture. And the thing that always strikes me about this scene, besides the fact that I feel so badly for Don and his mistress is out in the car, <laughs> um, is, is that it's, it, it points out... <laughs> I, I, I was watching that. I was like, "Wow, you're really still, you're still with him, <laughs> still with him." That, that woman is out there, like. That was in that table read. That, that's an example of a table read. We were 
everybody, he was reading this thing, and it's just this unbelievable moment, this unraveling, so anticipated. Everybody turns the page at the same time, and it says, you know, exterior teacher, whatever, I forget yeah. her name, is in Abigail. the car, and it was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> She's still in Ms. the car. Farrell. And like, yeah. no, everyone forgot that she was still in the car. Yeah, that was, that's, that's uh, story structure. That, oh. That's, by the way, if you want to know what the writer's room does, they figured that out. Mm. Writing dialogue is like another issue that, believe it or not, is not as difficult as figuring that out. That, um, and then this is so beautifully directed, but what I was struck by is the show was always inspired by this malleability, by the fact that you can change your name. And who knows what you feel like when you change your name, if you're an actor, a performer, who knows what, what David Bowie, you know, what, you create that persona and then it's you and you don't care anymore. You know, um, Woody Allen, like, do people know him, call him Allen? Do they call him Woody? That's his name. Was it his nickname, you know? It's such a part of our malleability again. And what I really feel when I watch this scene and John and January both understood this, is that this is a class issue. What you get there right away, when she says that thing about you don't understand money, and he, he, you, know, you feel, why did he want to become Don Draper? Because he got to put on that suit of armor and become that guy in the suit. Why did she marry a man that she knew nothing about? Because he was that guy. And here you strip it all away and you're from rural poverty, you're beneath me. You will never marry me and get into my class. And her aspirations are that. She feels incredibly duped. It's like Wuthering Heights to me or something. It's like that big. We don't have a lot of it in America, or we deny it. But um, I, just, I just remember thinking, like, when we watched it, like, we, we don't talk about things like this on the show. We talk about it in the writer's room, but I never have to talk about it because these people are super educated and they get it. And January knew right away that Betty was a snob. That was clear. And that she was aspirational and that she was a daddy's girl and a little bit of a brat and like, you know, had been valued for her beauty and that's, she brings that to it and all of a sudden she, you don't get to ask questions. The drama in that of like, this guy's, you see why he kept it a secret and you informed this a lot. You remember we had this conversation when I told John at the beginning of the season, I'm like, everybody knows, but Betty doesn't know. Pete's never going to tell her. It was a big climax in season one. Mm -hmm. He's never going to tell anybody. What's it matter? But Betty finds out, and he goes, this, everything, the kids, the house, their life, it's real. We really made that together. I gave that to her. Don gave that to her. And all of a sudden, I had what was the missing piece, which was, I always thought Don was just going to be like, yeah, I lied to you. And John, we, we talked about Don, why Don did it. It's, it, there's some nobility in it. Well, I mean, part of the reason I think it was so effective is because a very common fear is this idea that we're gonna be, we're a fraud or we're gonna be found out or something. And this is like a literal depiction of that. And then when this happens, then everyone, li everyone does know. And in a way, I guess this character is more free. So I wonder if, you know, if you could change what he did from that point he on. He says yeah. to Lane, yeah. when Lane gets caught, yeah. that feeling you have, that's relief. Yeah. I, I, I love the, the writing it and then seeing it executed, the physicality of him. Uh, he drops a cigarette, and it costs money to shoot things that don't have dialogue in them. It costs just as much as talking, and it's a lot less page space, and you've you're, you got to really pick those visual moments 
but the, the, the shell-shocked nature of his walking into the kitchen, dropping that cigarette, washing his face at the sink, sitting down, having the drink, telling, I mean, an abbreviated version of the story. <laughs> We're like, he's not gonna tell her everything. He doesn't have to. Plus the audience already knows it, they don't wanna hear it again. And, and just the, <laughs> it was a lesson for me in dramatization. Like, well, I always say it's not about what happens, it's how it happens. There was a draft of this script very early on where, um, you know, where we were figuring it out, where uh, Don walked in the house and she says, what's with the box? He's like, I can explain. And she goes, I bet you can. And she sits down and says, tell it to me. And then it became, you know, 15 pages and 10 minutes of the show to have him walk in, dum 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 I'm going to get my bag, mistress, stay in the car. Oh, the light's on, who is that? Oh, it's my daughter. Oh, I will be right back. Oh no, it's my wife. She won't let me go. Why am I going in there? You want me to open the drawer? I'm not gonna open it, you know what's in it. The drawer opens and then it's like all right in front of us. That was like, I, I, I got a lot of, I need feedback all the time but I remember that script going out and hearing from everybody who was in it and who wasn't in it saying like that was, I have a knot in my stomach from reading that. So that was like, that's what I wanted. <laughs> we got one last clip. Uh, it's a little more recent. I'm sure you all remember it. Another real kind of pivotal moment. In this final clip from the episode, The Other Woman in season five, Don goes to Joan's apartment and tells her he didn't vote for her to win than the Jaguar business. When this plot line happened, when Joan slept with someone to get this Jaguar account, um, after it occurred, uh, that was one of the first times, maybe not one of the first times, but I really became conscious of how real people see these characters to be. Because I, I found myself and saw many other debates about the idea would Joan have done this? There were a lot of people uh, who really were adamant about the fact that, you know, Joan would never have done this. Other people said, like, well, first of all, you can't dictate what she does, and this is her character. I'm curious, when you uh, realized this was going to be what the storyline was going to entail, did any part of you say to yourself, I don't know if this is within sort of the window of who I imagine Joan being, um, or is that sort of a superfluous question because Joan is whatever the script sort of describes? Uh, well, a couple things. Uh, Matt and I had discussed the storyline two or three seasons before. Um, and, you know, sometimes a season gets filled with stories and you, and you don't get to use a story. And, and I, it had been quite some time, so I was surprised when it sort of uh, reemerged. And, um, are you kidding me? I was like, sweet, that is... Crazy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, as an actress, yes. that's a yeah. super interesting thing to play, and and um, and uh, and also, um, you know, uh, came from a lot of stories that Matt had heard that were very, very real stories, and he had heard far worse stories than this. Um, so not only was it um, a a very real and true scenario. Um, but I think uh, incredibly interesting for the character. And I liked that it was controversial. And I liked that it caused conversation. And two, 
Um, the second part of your question is, um, yeah, uh, Joan does what the writer writes. <laughs> and um, that's what's so great. I've, I've never once gotten a script and said, Joan wouldn't do that. How would I, how on earth would I know what Joan would do? Well, I, I thought it was more surprising when people in the audience said this. I mean, you at least would have some agency over that. But Joan I, I, is a creation of Matt Weiner, and I am trying to be the best storyteller of his story that I can be and bring heart and soul and make you question that story and make you see two sides of that story and be mad at her and love her and understand her and be angry. That's my job. And his job is to tell the story, um, to write the story. So I've never once questioned. The only thing untrue that about that story uh, is that I don't think anyone ever got a partnership out of it. Hmm. Everything else is pretty much on the money. But I mean, that's such a high compliment. I, uh, that's a lot of trust. Um, I do know that we have, we, we're, we're kind of on the same side a lot of times. We're like, I can't believe she did that. No, I, you know, I, I feel like she's going to do, Joan does what she's going to do. We don't reverse ourselves that drastically of anything. The only thing that's ever been reversed is that I did think that Roger Sterling was going to die the first season. Hmm. Because, <laughs> because John, John had another job, and, and, and I didn't know if he wanted to stay with the show. Oh, you know, I was, I was going to ask this at the end, but I'm just going to ask it now. And, you, and this, maybe this is the full answer. But, you know, like in other shows, I know like in Breaking Bad, for example, the Jesse Pinkman character was supposed to die in the fourth episode, ends up becoming the central character. Are there any ideas that you had for this show that you ended up choosing not to do that would have radically or even marginally changed the experience besides this idea of Roger dying at the end of season one? Not the end. Or wh whenever he would have died. Like, I mean, I'm just wondering, because you, you must be thinking about this show all the time, thinking about ideas. Yes, it's you know, really yeah. weird to so, not be yeah. thinking about it all the time yeah, anymore. Yeah. I have to say, yeah. I had an idea <laughs> the other day and I was like looking for my pad I was like, and, Ro and I'm like, oh wait, that's it, that's over. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't what it be was funny it? Yeah, if? Tell us what was it? Uh, it was for Tony. <laughs> it was actually for Tony Soprano. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, I'm never going to use that now. No. Uh, it was no. Um, <laughs> I will tell you later. <laughs> but <clears throat> you never know. I mean, I, I don't really. I, I mean, you know, we used to. There was a joke, and when I was a comedy writer that we were Eskimos, that no part of the animal ever went to waste. And that if anything was even vaguely interesting, you would eventually find a way to use it. And there are stories that, have, that I told the first day on the job, like that field trip story with Betty, that, that, that they did with Betty taking, going on Bobby's field trip and getting so upset when he gave her lunch away. Um, that I just thought it would never be in the show and everyone's like, and it's not filler. They're like, why don't you do that story? Why can we never did it? I'm like, I don't think it's a story. And it's whatever. It's, not, it's a child's perception of, of something. And they're like, no, it's a story. And, we, and so that, we tried to use everything. I mean, the most, no one's, it, it, the, uh, the show does not work on people dying. So it's not like the, the oh, there was one thing. I always wanted to do a story about somebody getting fired. 
and how it would decimate their life because I understood this for various reasons. <laughs> and that they would lose their um, ability, they, they would feel unmanned in many ways. Like it's like a several fired. episode arc of uh, the uh, Yeah, and it was gonna be Rich Summers' character, Harry. Because mm. I thought he was a great actor. And this is the weird thing, because you're all mm. excited. Mm. You're like, you know, Joel Murray, I'm like, I've got this amazing story. You're gonna pee in your pants in the office, <laughs> and they're gonna take you out for a night on the town, and it's kind of like a, like, you know, this farewell, and you got all these great lines, and oh yeah, it's your last episode. Mm. It's great for us, it's horrible for you. And you always want to make sure, you know, Jared Harris, you're telling him, like, you know, I love writing for you. You're a great actor. This character, you can see the writing on the wall. And he got a feeling. He, if you ever watch the episode where he, where he embezzles the money with the check, he takes the check, he writes Don Draper's name on the check, he rips it out of the thing, and he waves goodbye, the actor. He knew it was like over. I had not told him yet, mm. but he knew. He's like, I cannot survive stealing money from the firm mm. when I am their chief financial officer. <laughs> but um, anyway, I don't, I don't know why I'm talking about this, but uh, I, I, I would say that we used everything we could think of. We usually were like, oh my God, what are we gonna do? Let's do that. You know, it, it was, uh, the thing that I'm happy about is that we did not have to spin the storytelling out of control to keep the audience interested. The season would finish, we would have used everything. It felt, if you look at where the seasons end and where they begin, it's quite drastic what's mm. happened, always, and quite permanent. And I was proud of committing to that, committing to divorcing my two main characters, committing to leaving the set, committing to Don's daughter seeing him in bed, like you, you can't do, undo that. You can't unring mm. the bell. Committing to him, you know, drinking whatever, those, those qualities, they stick to them and you're expecting the audience to keep track of it and you just can't come back next season pretending like it didn't happen. We don't do that. But on the other hand, I always felt like every season we would, instead of saying like, how are we gonna top that? Like what could be crazier than Joan sleeping with a client? How about, I don't know, how about Joan sleeping with five clients? You know, or <laughs> whatever you're gonna do. Mm. There's an old joke about, um, <laughs> I think it's the Keystone Cops that, they, that Cecil B. DeMille, the great director of all the disaster movies, you know, uh, said, I'm going to make a comedy, and whereas Max Sennett has 20 police officers chasing one criminal, I'm going to have 2,000 police officers chasing 20 criminals. Mm. And you just realize, like, that's not an escalation. That's, like, mm. terrible. <laughs> mm. So we always got to sort of just say, I'm going to tell a whole new story. It sounds... It comes from cowardice, not bravery in a weird way. It comes from like a desire for creative purity. And like, don't measure me by that. I'm, you, guess what, that's over. We are not doing that anymore. Here's the new show. And one of the interesting things about this final season, which I think premieres on April 5th on AMC, is that the- oh, did, I thought it, it was the, tomorrow. The, no, it's not it's, tomorrow. I thought it was tomorrow. I told everyone to is, watch. No is wonder. Charlie Collier here? Yeah. <laughs> the message has not been heard. I don't know how. We've gotten every piece of space in New York City yeah. except the inside of your eyelid. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, 
I, I, yeah. it's April 5th. Yeah, well, <laughs> Easter. Right? I'm going to call yeah. you, I'm going to text you. Yeah. On, uh, right, it is Easter, or third night of Passover, yeah. as some people call it. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually yeah. what Jesus called it, just yeah. so you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, so we had the advantage of like using all the story that we could. That's basically it. I don't, I don't have regrets about, there was a list of stories on the wall that we never got to put in the show. But I have to say, when you see the whole span of the last 14 episodes, and it was different splitting it up like this. It's much more focused on the people that are on this stage. There's not a lot of digressions. There's not a lot of um, what we would call in great homage a Pine Barrens. There's not a lot of like going off the road for a certain kind of story. We're right in it the whole time. Um, and. Um, that's a good thing to not have a regret about like leaving you know, your best work on the floor. There are some stories that we wanted to do that just we would always put in the script and they would always, we'd end up cutting them out, that the, the, the show rejected certain storylines. And... Um, Such as? Uh, I, I'm not gonna share that. <laughs> I'm not gonna share it. There are some things that are, you know, whatever. It did. It, w it failed. So, like, I'm going to tell you, hey, you know what we did? It was terrible. <laughs> I'm very happy that there's, that there's the amount of terrible that's out there. It's a pretty, it looks pretty small to me. Hmm. Well, since the show's on tomorrow, enjoy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, the NCAA tournament might still be on. Um, but uh, that's pretty much it. You should give a huge round of applause for these people who are just wonderful. Some things that don't get to be said, um, and they have to be said now, which is that we are all really grateful that we had, and I, I, I hope this is not a demeaning term, that we have fans of the show. That people, I, I'm a fan of TV shows. I never thought that would happen. I don't know how it worked. I didn't know what they would like. I love that the characters are real to people, and, and we are very grateful the, the experience of being here in New York and hearing how people feel about the show going off the air, which I'm sorry about, but that I just say on behalf of everybody, they can say it themselves or whatever, I just wanted to take an opportunity to thank you, Chuck Klosterman. That's wrong, but hey, so that I was, was wrong. Right. No yeah. one ever mispronounces yeah. my name. What is it? Well, it's Klosterman. Klosterman, how can I not know that? Well, why would you? I'm not yeah, wiener. Okay. <laughs> um, but that we are, I want to thank you for doing this, but we wanted to say like thank you for, for for watching the show all these years and being so enthusiastic and coming out to see us. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. 
Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.